1 Samuel 5, chapter 5 through 7, 2. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they went and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought against around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as to the Egyptians and Pharaoh, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took milk, two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. 
The cart came into the fields of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jaharim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jaharim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jaharim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's all the time I have this morning. So the Lord bless you. And it was a long passage today, but why don't we pray and ask the Lord to give us understanding as we work through this text together. Father, thank you so much for just another great day that you've created for us, Lord. And God, we're so thankful for the family of God. We're so blessed that together we have relationships. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are here to worship together with us and fellowship with us. And even as we were able to pray for other believers and for people that are hurting today, Lord, we're just reminded of the blessing that it is to be your people and to be in the community and in the family of God. Lord, we thank you this morning for your holy word. God, would you please speak to us and minister to us as we work through these couple of chapters in 1 Samuel, and we just ask, God, that you today would remind us of what you reminded these peoples, the Philistines and the Israelites, all these years ago, namely, that you are holy. So, God, would you please speak to us in your word, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Now, I'm going to reference right now the movie Troy. Again, I did that last week. And so you must be thinking like, A, he loves that movie or B, he just watched it. And actually neither of those things are true. Um, but, but there's just something about the situations that we're looking at here in 1 Samuel that just keep reminding me of things that I remember seeing in the movie Troy. In that movie, if you've ever seen it, you'll remember the, the Greek invaders, they come and they cross the sea and they're, they're there wanting to get inside the city of Troy. But Troy was famous for having walls that were impenetrable. You could not get into the walls of Troy. And so after some hard battles were fought, eventually the Greeks realized we cannot overtake the walls here and get inside. And so, of course, they devise a famous plan. They construct a big giant wooden Okay, a horse. Yes, some of us have seen this. So they construct a huge wooden horse and what they do is they leave it on the shore and then they take off. They get in their boats and they sail away. At least that's what the Trojans thought. And so to the Trojans, it appears that they're leaving this giant wooden horse as sort of an offering and a sign of surrender. Hey, you beat us. Here's a big wood horse we made you. We're all going to go home. And that's what it appears. But of course, what happens is the Trojans take this gigantic horse and they bring it inside the city. Now it's inside the walls. 
They party, they celebrate, they're so stoked that they fought off these invaders and then they go to bed that night. And of course, inside this giant wooden horse are a bunch of Greek soldiers. And once the whole city's asleep, they get out of the wooden horse, they open up the gates and the rest of the Greeks come back in and they enter the city and they overthrow the city of Troy. They've needed in this instance to first fake defeat in order to get inside enemy territory so that they could bring about victory. And in the chapters that we just read together this morning, the Lord himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is doing something similar. If you were here last week, I was trying to explain to you that, that from one perspective, the perspective of the Philistines and even the Israelites themselves, it had looked like the Philistines defeated the Lord and his people. But the truth of the matter was that God was the one who allowed his people to be defeated, allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken captive into Philistine territory. And what we just read today is that the Lord did all of that in order to work a great victory over the Philistines by himself. It's an amazing, amazing story. When we were studying chapter four last week, we were covering what could arguably be, be said to be the, the low point, the national low point for God's people up to this point, uh, ever since getting out of Egypt. This is the lowest they have been. They lost two battles to their enemies, the Philistines, and the second one was a decisive defeat. They lost 30,000 soldiers. The army was routed. Everybody basically gave up. And worse than that, their two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed in battle. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Ark of the Covenant is taken away from Israel by the Philistines. And they take this Ark away and it's basically like a victory trophy for them. And they take that trophy and they stick it inside the temple of their own God, a God named Dagon. The sentiment in Israel is well summed up by the dying words of Phineas's wife from last week when she said, the glory has departed from Israel. So they're at this all-time low point. And yet the Philistines are riding high. They are celebrating. We destroyed these guys. We beat the Israelites and for them at this point, they would have understood that to mean not only do we beat the Israelites, but we actually beat their God too. In ancient warfare, the two armies that would battle, they would be bringing their gods into that battle. And whoever won, it was a statement that our regional God, our local God is stronger than your God. And that's certainly what the Philistines would have believed at this point. And so again, they take the Ark of God after this battle, they set it up in the temple of their God, Dagon. And much like the trophy <clears throat> that the citizens of Troy carried into their city, the Philistines have their trophy safely set in its place too. But in both cases, once the lights go out and everybody is asleep, disaster befalls them. The first section here in verses one through five can be summarized this way. The Lord defeats Dagon. That's what happens in this introductory paragraph. When the people go to bed, again, they're thinking, man, we are powerful. And our God, Dagon, is powerful. He has defeated Yahweh and he has defeated the Israelites. And they go to sleep thinking that. And then they wake up. And what did we read in the text? When they wake up, they go into their temple and the idol of Dagon, the statue of Dagon, is face down on the floor lying on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Now the people, and this is almost comical to us, of course, but the people are like, hmm, this is weird. What should we do? Okay, well, let's give, let's give Dagon a hand here. And they grab him and they pick him up and probably dust him off a little bit. And they prop him back up into his place. And they look like, hey, is everything okay? Okay, Dagon's good. He's back in his place. And they think they've solved the problem. Well, because they don't get the memo, and they don't understand what God is trying to tell them, the next night God pushes things a little bit further. Here's what it says in verse four of chapter five. It says, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So now Dagon's not only lying face down before the ark of the Lord, but he's been decapitated, his head fell off, and his hands are cut off as well. So it's just his trunk that's left at this point. And they walk in and they see this, and they, they, they definitely would have understood the message. This message is, your God has been totally defeated. In the ancient world, in battle scenarios, oftentimes the victor would decapitate their enemy as a sign of total victory. I mean, think a few chapters forward in 1 Samuel here. David is going to kill Goliath with what? He kills him with a sling and a stone. But after he kills Goliath and Goliath is laying face down, he runs over and he pulls out the sword of Goliath and he chops off his head, essentially as a trophy and to demonstrate superiority over Goliath. So as Dagon is lying face down in front of Yahweh and his head has come off, it is saying total victory. I also read somewhere that in ancient warfare, oftentimes they would take people's heads off and their hands off so that they can get an accurate body count of how many enemies they had killed. So they would take those, and again, they would use those to count up how many people had fallen. So the Lord makes a very clear statement here. I am God over Dagon. Dagon is dead, and he is weak. He's a pathetic idol, and in fact, he needs to be propped up by his own worshipers. So the statement is made. And now what's really interesting in the text is that as, the, as the, the story goes on, now that Dagon's hands have been cut off, which your hands are the sign of your power and your ability to actually do things, now that his hands are cut off, what becomes prominent in the story going forward is this expression, and the hand of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord. Dagon's hands are completely incapacitated because he's not real, and the hand of the Lord is the one controlling all the events in the story. You could see verse 5, 6, 7, 9, 11. In chapter 6, verses 3, 5, and 9, they all speak of the hand of the Lord being active in this story. So let's bring the whole story together up to this point. If you put together what happened last week, when Eli, the wicked, unfaithful priest in Israel, fell off of his throne and snapped his neck, When you put that together now with Dagon, the God of the Philistines, falling off of his throne and snapping his own neck. Yahweh's statement, the Lord's statement here is very clear. I am God over all people. I am God over Israel. I am God over the Philistines. I am God over all people. And I need to be taken seriously. Well, to make things even more clear to the Philistines, to prove to them that God is the only God, that he is actually in control over everything, the Lord moves the battle now from him fighting against their God and defeating Dagon to now the Lord actually going against the Philistine people themselves. In the second section now, we see that the Lord defeats the Philistines. And this is starting in verse 6 of chapter 5, going on to verse 12. As Lisa read for us in this passage, the Lord now actually begins to afflict the people. He starts with the people in Ashdod. This is where Dagon's temple was. And so the Lord there working in Ashdod begins to afflict the people with some sort of a plague. The people have tumors. We we later read that they have, that, that there's mice connected to these tumors that the people are having. Um, In fact, a lot of people historically have believed that this is one of the first instances in history of bubonic plague. Now, we don't know that for sure, but we certainly know that there is a plague breaking out in Ashdod. And again, people are having these tumors swell up in them. People are dying of it, and it's terrible. And so the people of Ashdod freak out. They want nothing to do with this terrifying Ark of the Covenant that killed their God and seems to be now afflicting the people with these tumors. And so the Philistines begin to play hot potato with the Ark. They're like, we got to get this thing out of Ashdod. What do we do? The lords of the Philistines say, well, just take it on down to Gath, which is another major city in the Philistine empire. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant down to Gath. And guess what? As the Ark gets to Gath, so does the plague. 
And all of the citizens of Gath now start experiencing these same symptoms. People are dying and they freak out and they go, what shall we do? Oh, I've got it. We'll just send the ark down to Ekron, which is another major city in uh, the Philistine empire. And so the ark now goes down onto Ekron and guess what? Everywhere the ark goes, the plague follows. Essentially what we're witnessing here in this chapter is God's victory tour. The Lord is now marching through Philistia, the region here that the Philistines dominate. God is marching through city to city and he is destroying the Philistines. And he is showing them that he is the Lord, that he has power over everything. He is in control, Dagon is not. And I couldn't help but notice as I was reading about this this week that Israel was not able to defeat the Philistines without God's help, but God was able to defeat the Philistines without Israel's help. God did not need an army. God was able to go into the Philistine territory, the very same Philistines who just decimated his people. God could go there on his own. He could wreak havoc on his enemies and literally bring them to to their knees. And this The story that we're describing here spans the course of about seven months where this ark is being sent from city to city, community to community, and the plague is spreading around. And the Philistines finally get to their wits end and look at verse 12. It says, the cry of the city went up to heaven. So these people, the Philistines, are desperate now. They do not know how to rid themselves of this plague. Everything is going terribly. And so finally, they look for a way to remedy the problem and they ultimately surrender to the Lord. This is the third movement in the text. It's chapter six, verses one through 18. The Philistines surrender to the Lord. Now, the seven months are probably important. Seven, as many of you know, in the Bible is sort of the number of completion or perfection. And it seems that the scriptures here are saying that the time of God's ark being in exile has been completed. The job has been fulfilled that God was accomplishing among the Philistines, again, namely demonstrating to them that he is God. And first, what the Philistines had done is they had turned to their own lords for wisdom. That was in chapter five. So these were their military and political leaders. And they said, what shall we do? And it was the lords of the Philistines who had told them, just send it to Gath and then just send it to Ekron. So that failed. But now here in chapter six, They turn to their spiritual leaders. They turn to their priests and their diviners. And they ask them, what shall we do? What do we need to do to rid ourselves of this plague? And the priests and the diviners put their heads together and they basically conclude, you need to send the ark back to Israel. Got to get rid of it, but do not send it empty handed. Otherwise, you're going to continue to provoke the God of Israel. So send it back with a guilt offering. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you think this guilt offering is really bizarre? A a golden tumors, all right, five of them and, and, and golden mice. Really weird, right? But they say, listen, you need to actually take some gold and, and craft five golden tumors, which if you were working with gold back in those days, that would have been the easy task. Like just make a blob, like a a little ball of gold. The other one would have been a little bit harder and would have maybe taken some artistic skill. You got to make golden mice. But nevertheless, it's make all of these golden objects. And then when you send the ark back to Israel, you need to send those golden objects with the ark back to Israel as a guilt offering to the Lord. The idea here is that these gold offerings are going to represent the suffering that these people are enduring through these plagues. It's going to represent that. And they hope that all the gold that they're sending over is going to appease Yahweh. And that as these golden offerings are removed from the land with Yahweh and the ark, that the actual plague that they symbolize is going to be removed as well. And that they'll be free from this horrible plague. Notice that in offering these sacrifices to the Lord and returning his ark to its rightful place, verse five is saying that they are giving glory to the God of Israel. So their priests, although not believers in Yahweh in any saving sense, they have enough sense to say, 
you need to give that God glory. And the way you're going to do that is by offering him these sacrifices and giving his ark back to him. So this act of surrender is making a statement. It's saying we are bending our knee to Yahweh. Now, again, this is not in a saving sense. These people are not coming into a saving relationship with the Lord of Israel. It's more like they're, they're making a statement saying, you know what, we've realized now that we picked a fight with somebody that we can't beat, right? Like we're, th- this needs to stop. We realize you're stronger than we are and we need to hope that you will let us go, that you'll leave us away or alone rather. Even in the directions of the priests in verse five, notice that they acknowledge that Yahweh is in total control of everything that he's calling the shots and they are not. Here's verse five again. It says, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. See what they say here? They say, perhaps he will. Not, and then he's going to remove. Maybe, hopefully, perhaps he'll actually remove his hand or lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. God has made his point very clear, and the Philistines have gotten it. We are not in control. We thought we were powerful, and we thought our God was in control over you, but now we realize that is not true. And so we are coming to you, we are sending the ark back, and we're going to send these golden objects to you in hopes that you will relent of this disaster, and you will leave us alone. These priests are, of course, familiar with the Exodus story. You see that over in verse 6. But they recall what they had been told about the Exodus from Egypt. Namely, that when these same people, the Israelites, were slaves in Egypt, that God had sent a bunch of terrible plagues down on Egypt. And the Pharaoh had hardened his heart over and over again. And what happened? The plagues got worse and worse, and the Lord just kept ratcheting them up until the last one when the firstborn in Israel was killed. And finally, Pharaoh capitulated and just said, fine, just get out of here. And he sent away the, the Jewish people. And these priests in, uh, of the Philistines are like, don't do that. We know this God. Don't harden your hearts like that. We know this God. He's not going to let up. It's only going to get worse for us from here. So let's just let the ark go now. Let's just surrender to Yahweh now. And so they decide to do that. They know that ultimately they must give in. So in order to do that, what do they do? Well, they set up a test. And the reason they're setting this test up is they want to make sure with 100% certainty that what they think is true, namely that Yahweh, the the God of Israel, is the one afflicting them. They want to make sure that's actually true. And that these plagues that that are ravaging the land are not happening just by coincidence. Because if it is just coincidence, they probably actually want to keep the ark and they definitely don't want to be fearful of these Hebrew people. So they're setting up a test here and here's how they do it. They say, we need to prepare a new cart and then we need to take two female cows or milk cows and we need to yoke them to the cart. And then we need to load up the ark and we need to load up all of these gold offerings on top of that ark. And then we need to just send it off and see what happens. And they say, if that, if that cart and those cows go back to Israel on their own accord, we know that the Lord of Israel is behind us. And if they don't, then we can rightly conclude that this is all just happening by coincidence. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but they really, really set things up in such a way that the Lord himself is going to have to get that ark back to Israel if he's the one behind this. The reason for that is because the selection of these animals is very intentional. These two animals that they chose would have every incentive not to go back to Israel. The first reason being that these animals we read were never before under a yoke, meaning they had never been used for work. They'd never been yoked together with another animal. They'd never driven a cart before. And so without some training, animals would not know how to do that. And so these animals would need to be divinely guided in order to even pull the cart in the first place. The second issue is notice the animals they selected. They're two female cows or milk cows who actually have calves. And they take the calves away from the mothers 
and keep them in their city. And they say, listen, if these mothers go out to Israel against all of their maternal instinct, then we know it is the Lord that is driving this ark back home. And we need to fear this God. Well, what happens? Verse 12 tells us, the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So notice, the author is very, he's he's very specific here. They go straight into Israelite territory. They don't turn to the right hand. They don't turn to the left. It is a direct shot straight to the town of Beth Shemesh, which is a border town in Israelite territory. And notice he even, the author even writes that they were lowing as they went, meaning that these mother cows are crying, presumably because they're leaving their young behind. They're crying the whole journey as they make these, this trip over into Israelite territory. In other words, these cows are being driven quite against their will. This is the Lord who is driving these cows back to Israel in order to get his ark back where it actually belongs. This whole episode is trying to tell us that the ark of the Lord moves on its own initiative. The only reason it ever went into Philistine territory was because, remember we talked about this, because the glory departed from Israel. That's a word that indicates that the glory left on its own accord. And now we see as it comes back into Israel, it is moving according to its own initiative. Nobody is moving it themselves. There's no drivers that are moving this cart. God himself is driving the ark back to his people. And when they see it, when the people of Beth Shemesh see the ark of the Lord, they rejoice. They're in the middle of harvesting their wheat. They would not naturally want to stop. This is the most important part of the season for them. It's when they actually get their food. But they see the ark coming down the road and they just drop their sickles. They drop everything and they receive the ark and they throw a big party. They celebrate. The ark stopped on its own in a field belonging to a man named Joseph. They break down the cart. They use the wood for firewood and then they sacrifice these cows as as an offering to the Lord in this moment. They take the ark off of the cart. They take the golden objects with it and they place them, we read, on a great stone in this field. Now, this was a town that had Levites in it and Levites were the people in the Old Testament who worked with the priests, knew all of the laws about how to handle the ark. And these Levites, they take the ark and they set it on this big, great stone. And again, they slaughter these cows. They have this feast and they are celebrating the return of the ark. God's ark is back home. God's victory tour is complete. He willingly went into exile in Philistine territory to bring about victory over his enemies. Now, I think there's a really, really important lesson for us in that, that we learn from what God was just doing as it relates to our own salvation about the victory that God brings into our lives. Notice that God didn't send his people into enemy territory to defeat their enemies. God himself goes into enemy territory and defeats his people's enemies. Tim Chester, in his commentary on the book of 1 Samuel, he points out that what was true of Israel in this instance is true for all people who are saved by the Lord. Think about it. 2,000 years ago, God the Son left the glories of heaven, right? And he entered into enemy-occupied territory, this world. And we know who the God of this world is, according to the scriptures, it's Satan himself. And yet Jesus, God the Son, entered into enemy territory in order to bring about victory over our great enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And just as God's victory came against the Philistines, through what appeared to be his defeat. So the salvation and the victory that God brought through Jesus in this world came to us through what appeared to be his defeat. When Jesus was pulled down from that cross and he was taken and he was buried in Joseph's tomb, 
Don't you think, I just thought of that. Isn't that interesting? This is the field of Joseph here. And Jesus is buried in Joseph's tomb. Anyway, um, think about this. When, when, when Jesus, our Lord, is placed in Joseph's tomb, don't you think that Satan had the biggest smile of his life on his face? He's thinking mission accomplished. Just like the Philistines were thinking, we've done it. We've defeated Yahweh. We're in charge. We're in control. And Satan must have been smiling and rejoicing when the trophy of his victory was laid to rest on Holy Saturday. And when he went to sleep on that Holy Saturday, with that big smile on his face, little did he know, just like the Philistines here, that when he would wake up the next morning, everything would change. Because when he woke up on Easter Sunday, Satan was in for a rude awakening. The stone was rolled away, the grave was empty, and Jesus, our Savior, was raised in victory forevermore. I love that. What a beautiful picture we have here of the good news of the gospel. Well, this leads us now into the fourth and final section of this story that we're studying today, where the Lord now disciplines the Israelites. And this is covered in chapter 6, verse 19, through chapter 7, verse 2. Now, where I just ended would have been an awesome place to end a sermon, right? Like, we're, we're right there on this gospel note. Everything's great. The ark's back there in Israel. The people of God are celebrating. Why couldn't the story end there? Well, because the Lord needed to discipline the Israelites first. Notice God struck 70 men from Beth Shemesh starting there in verse 19. And these people, when they see 70 of their own countrymen struck down and destroyed, just killed right there on the spot, they're dismayed. They're blown away. They get rocked by this. I mean, it's kind of like, hold on, we just went from having a party and rejoicing over the Lord to now God himself striking out against us. What is going on? And so they're totally rocked by this. Now, there are various interpretations of what is going wrong in this text. Like, what did these guys do wrong that, that caused the Lord to strike out against them? In our community group on Thursday night, we just brainstormed a little bit. Like, what do you guys think is going on here? And there's a lot of interesting ideas. But generally, there's kind of three main ideas among the commentators of what was going wrong here. The first was this. Some people point to the fact that there were heifers that were sacrificed and that these Levites should have known better. Because according to the law, when animal sacrifices or, or uh, burnt offerings were being offered to the Lord, they were supposed to take male animals, male um, bulls that were being offered. We see this, for example, in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. It says, if his offering is a burnt offering, which notice in this text, this is called a burnt offering. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So a lot of people point out, okay, these Levites knew better and yet they allowed this unlawful sacrifice to take place. Instead of going and getting some unblemished bulls that they had, they just took these, these female cows that were right there, easily accessible and tried to offer them to the Lord. Others point out secondarily that in the Old Testament, it was only the priests who were allowed to look upon the Ark of the Lord. And even then, it was only them looking on the outside of the Ark of the Lord. Never, ever were they supposed to look inside the Ark of the Lord. In fact, every time the Ark was transported, when the people of God were moving the tabernacle from one place to another, the priests had to go in and they had to cover the Ark so that the people wouldn't see it. Check this out. This is Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth olive blue and shall put in its poles. So when they would break down the Ark to go move it, they were inside the temple or the tabernacle and they would cover the Ark so that it would be out of view of a, a non-priest, of a common Israelite person. Therefore, a lot of scholars that study this passage, they point out the fact that the first thing that these Levites should have done is they should have covered the Ark of the Lord. Instead, what did they do? They grabbed the Ark and they set it up on a great stone so that everybody can sit and look upon this Ark. Finally, 
And you might have a different translation than the ESV, but some translations of this passage actually write this. They say, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark. And, and the truth is we just don't know if that's what happened or not because the preposition there in Hebrew can be translated, they looked on or they looked in. And only the context would tell you which is the right way to translate that preposition. So it's very possible that that was the issue. That these people, they get the ark, they're super stoked and they actually very irreligiously, they pop the thing open to look inside of it and the Lord kills 70 of them right there. I think either option two or three is most likely, not option one, because the reason that verse 19 gives for why God struck these 70 men down has to do with them looking either upon or into the ark of God. But at any rate, family, the the bottom line is very clear. At least some of the people of Beth Shemesh failed to treat the ark of the Lord with the reverence it deserved. And so God, now that he has brought the ark back into Israel, he reestablishes his holiness with his people. Remember, before the ark gets taken captive, the issue before the Lord was that those who were handling the ark, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were showing contempt. Now, as the ark comes back to Israel, what do we see again? We see some of the people at Beth Shemesh once again treating the ark of the Lord with contempt. And so God makes it clear at the outset as he, as his ark and his presence has come back into Israel, I will be regarded as holy. My people will honor my word. They will obey my commandments. They will not treat me lightly. Or to put it differently, they will again feel the weight of my glory. Now, God, after making this bold statement, scares the people and the people ask a very piercing question in verse 20. They say this, they say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They look and they go, we tried, we had a party, we were trying to celebrate and honor the Lord and 70 people got killed. So they're terrified. It's much like how David responds in 2 Samuel when he's trying to get the ark over to Jerusalem. And remember, Uzzah reaches out his his hand because the ark is about to fall off of a cart there and he reaches it out to stabilize it and God kills Uzzah on the spot. And David is distraught. He's like, "What, what are we supposed to do? How can we even come in the presence of this holy God? A similar thing is happening here. And they ask this piercing question, who then is able to stand in the presence of this holy God? Now, before we we answer that question, I want to first consider their second question. Notice there in verse 20, they go on to say, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Now, the reason this is so significant is because instead of facing up to the spiritual challenge of discerning, where did we go wrong? And getting into the word of God and saying, what was our mistake? And then repenting of that mistake and reconciling things with God and getting back in on kind of right footing before their God. Instead of doing that, what do the Israelites do here? They take a page out of the Philistines playbook and they say, well, why don't we just send it on to another community? So they try to find other people who are willing to take the ark off of their hands. Look at verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. They don't even give them warning. Like, hey, but be careful. This has like been really dangerous by us. They're like, good news, you guys. The ark came back. You guys want it? And the people from Kiriath-Jerim are like, that's awesome. We'd love to have it. So they, they come over in verse one of chapter seven and they take up the ark of the Lord and they bring it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, certainly these dark days in Israel are not going to improve as long as the people of God are unwilling to come face to face with their sinfulness and seek to live according to the word of God. 
And that's not going to happen for another 20 years. But for us, we'll learn about it next week. So we don't have to wait so long. But it's not going to happen for another 20 years. But they do end up finding these willing recipients in Kiriath-Jerim who are going to come and receive the ark. And notice they take it to the house of a man named Abinadab. And I think this is so funny. Notice it says Abinadab on the hill. Like, it's at the house of Abinadab, but not Abinadab who lives near the tavern and not Abinadab over by the temple. We're talking about Abinadab up on the hill. Like, it's got this little note. It's that guy's house. And so the ark goes to his house. And what do they do? They set it up there and it stays there until David, decades later, actually tries to get it to Jerusalem. So the ark finds a temporary resting place. And there's no word here that that God lashed out at anybody in Kiriath-Jerim. Thus, it seems that an answer has been found to that first piercing question. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Answer, only those who have been consecrated. Do you see the step that they took there in verse 1? They transport the ark to the house of Abinadab and they consecrate his son, Eliezer, to minister before the ark. What does that word mean, consecrated? That Hebrew word means to be set apart or holy or removed from common use or sanctified. Family, this is so important. The reason why Eleazar can stand before this holy God and minister before him is because he himself has been made holy or he himself has been set apart through the sacrifices and rituals that are prescribed in the Old Testament. In the same way, if we are to ask here today, The question of verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The only answer is this, those who have been made holy, those who have been set apart through the sacrifice that God has provided. And of course, that sacrifice is our Lord Jesus. See, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that God has somehow changed, that his character is different. In the Old Testament, he was kind of mean, He was a little bit grumpy. He had these episodes. He'd like lash out at times and kill people. But by the time of the New Testament, he totally changes his tune. He's all kind of like a big marshmallow or teddy bear now. It's all grace. It's all kindness. And they think that God has changed. Friends, God is just as holy today as he was 3,500 years ago. And God will always be exactly as holy as he has always been. The scriptures say he never changes. What that means is that the true God, not not all the false gods out there like the Dagons of this world, but the true God is dangerous. And he is a threat to every single person. Notice he was not only a threat to the Philistines. He was a threat to Philistines and Israelites alike. He is a dangerous God because he is holy and we are sinful. And so, Every single one of us would suffer the exact same fate as the Philistines, the exact same fate as these 70 men in Beth Shemesh, were it not for God himself providing a sacrifice by which you and I can be made holy and sanctified and be in right standing with him and therefore not be at risk of being struck down by the Lord. Today, people are not set apart or made holy through the blood of animals. We are set apart and made holy through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 explains it for us. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being what? Sanctified or made holy or set apart from common use, set apart to be useful to the Lord. 
The author of Hebrews goes on, starting in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Translation, since we don't have to be terrified to get up near the ark, because we are, we are we're covered with the blood of Jesus. We can do it confidently. We can go into the holy places through the blood of Jesus, he says, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of, of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I don't know if you came here today in need of good news, but I come here every Sunday in need of good news. And that is the greatest news we will ever receive. You and I can confidently, with no fear, no trepidation, we can enter into the holy places through the blood of Jesus. And we are accepted. We have a great high priest in the house of God. So these chapters that we just studied right now tell us a story, and it's a historical story, of the exile of the ark of God. But as they tell that story, the real story, the story inside the story is a story about the holiness of God. It's a story about how God's holiness was just as much a danger to his own people as it was to the Philistines and as it is for every single one of us. And only those who have been consecrated, meaning set apart and made holy through the sacrifices God provides can stand in his presence. And so as we end, I have to ask this question, what about you? Where do you stand before this holy God? Have you been set apart as holy unto the Lord by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if so, then family, God's holiness is no threat to you. You do not stand at risk of God's judgment. God will never lash out at you. You are accepted and you are loved today, tomorrow, and on through eternity. And that's some great news. And God's holiness is not only not a threat to you, but in Christ, you actually share in God's holiness. Isn't that amazing? Because who among us can sit here and say, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm perfectly holy. You're not, and I'm not. But if you're in Christ through faith, then you are because you stand in his perfect holiness. But friends, as I close, let me say this, that if you have not been set apart as holy, by placing your faith in Jesus, then just like the Philistines and just like these 70 men from Beth Shemesh, God's holiness is fatally dangerous for you. Romans 3.23 reminds us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you stand in the presence of God like these men of Beth Shemesh were standing in, when you stand in the presence of God, listen to me, because you have fallen short of his glory, the weight of God's glory will crush you. This is true. You cannot stand before this holy God. But friend, all of that can change for you today. Today, if you will look to Jesus, who offered his own life as a sacrifice for your sins, then you can have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Why would you not do that? today.